I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. If you love listening to this show as much as I love hosting it, I think you'll really like the Medal of Honor podcast, produced in partnership with the Medal of Honor Museum. Each episode talks about a genuine American hero and the actions that led to their receiving our nation's highest award for valor. They're just a few minutes each, so if you're looking for a show to fill time between these Warriors episodes, I think you'll love the Medal of Honor podcast. Search for the Medal of Honor podcast wherever you get your shows. Thanks. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll be hearing from Jack Hessman. Hessman was a Navy corpsman assigned to the Marine Corps. He fought in the famous Battle of the Chosin Reservoir during the Korean War. I was a Navy medical corpsman assigned to the Marine Corps. We're also called FMF corpsmen, standing for Fleet Marine Force corpsmen. And when you go to the FMF, you discard your Navy blues, you wear a Marine uniform, and the Eagle Globe and anchors on everything. And uh, so you're indistinguishable in, to most people from the everyday Marine. We got to Japan on a troop ship just in time to get into a typhoon in the harbor. We had to evacuate the ship, go on land, because they were afraid two ships in the harbor were going to collide. One had broken loose. So we spent our first night or two in Kobe, Japan. Then we went to Korea and landed at the Busan perimeter port at the very southern tip of Korea. It was the last real estate the UN held. It was a small perimeter, I guess it must have been about 20, 30 miles uh, of an arc. I arrived with the 1st Provisional Marine Brigade, which was a hastily assembled group of Marines, primarily from uh, one of the islands and from San Diego. But they were the most experienced Marines the Corps had. So they put them into combat right away. And the first major battle they had was called the First Naktong at the Naktong River, where the Army people had been defeated and driven back. The Marines came in, retook the ground, turned it back over to the Army. Then we fell back for a rest. That's when I joined. Uh, next thing I know, we're in the what's now known as Second Naktong. Uh, we had to go back and retake the, the land again. Then they pulled us back and loaded us aboard ship, and we steamed up up the coast to the uh, off the harbor of Incheon. General Douglas MacArthur had this brilliant idea to go in there with an amphibious landing. And just a little bit south of the uh, North-South Korean border. 
his idea was to cut off all the North Korean troops who were putting the pressure on down south. Most of his senior officers opposed the move because the Incheon Harbor had something like, I think, uh, 80-foot tides, or maybe it was 36-foot. I'm not sure. Anyhow, substantial tides. Once the tide went out, you had nothing but mudflats there. So with the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, I went in on the first wave in the morning. We secured this island in the harbor called Wolmy Island. It was really a, a small mountain in the harbor. It gave us command and commanding view of the whole situation. And we sort of watched the evening landing take place. It was quite a sight. We started moving up, and the weather had turned bitter cold, and it got worse the higher we went. And we found ourselves most of the time on the side of cliffs on this narrow ox cart road that took the whole convoy up the top. We went through a few villages, and it was amazing. We are all bundled up in our winter gear, sitting in the backs of these trucks, really suffering from the cold. But yet we pass through native villages, and they're out there in their shirt sleeves, some of them, and little kids out there with absolutely nothing on but a little tiny vest. Bonsai, bonsai, bonsai. They're walking among us. So uh, we went on up and made camp eventually at a place called Udamni, which was as far north as we ever got. The first night there, I noticed some activity on a far ridge, and I brought it to the attention of one of our officers. He said, we know about that. They're just some volunteers. So um, gave it no further thought. Sometime way after dark, they attacked in force, and the ground was frozen solid. We had these entrenching tools, which you could use as a shovel, or you lock them in a 45-degree angle and use it as a pick. Supposedly, in most terrain, it would enable you to dig away at the dirt. Up there, it did nothing. Most people gave up and slept on top of the ground. We had good equipment in that respect. We had these mountain-type sleeping bags, which were downfilled and were very good protection. I chose to go up on a hillside, found a little ravine or a little gully that was enough of a depression that served as a foxhole. And I set up my sleeping bag there and then got in and zipped it up. This is before we had any attacks. Well, when the attacks came, suddenly I was trapped in my own sleeping bag. So I decided to stay put because there was activity going on back and forth all around me. And so I just played possum. Somebody, and I'm sure it was um, Chinese troops, stood right beside me, came up and looked at me for a long time. And I, I was there in the sleeping bag and I had a 38 revolver in my hand. I figured if it got real bad, I would try to shoot. 
biggest problem was deciding whether to take a preemptory shot or not. I just laid very still. And whoever it was moved on. I was afraid to open my eyes wide enough to make out the, who the person was or, you know, not identify him, but just to uh, see who I was dealing with. And so when, when he moved on, then I unzipped the bag, got out of it, and went down. And about 50 yards down, we had our, uh, our company set up. When the fighting began, uh, we were all equipped with uh, uh, gloves and mittens over the gloves, wool, wool gloves, good quality. And then these uh, mittens that had a trigger finger. So you could take a carbine or a rifle or a machine gun and still use it and keep your mittens on. That's very helpful. All right, I'm I'm a pack rat, so I um, I over prepare for most situations. It's just a, a trait, you know, family trait. So I had a couple of layers of socks, and we had these thermos type, what they call shoe packs. They were uh, boots that were rubberized, and you pulled them on, laced them up. And they were acted like a thermos bottle, except your feet would sooner or later start perspiring. And the thermos effect was not good enough that eventually the uh, perspiration froze. And that's how we got a lot of cases of frostbite. And the rest of me, I had... Uh, about four pairs of pants on. I had my regular field utilities. Under that, I had wool, marine, marine green trousers. And on top of that, I had uh, ski pants that they had issued to us, good against the wind and everything. And then I had um, jacket, field jacket, sweater, and cap, and then this big heavy parka. So we had good protection against the, the the weather to the extent that it was possible to have any protection. But it also inhibited much in the way of movement. You were just uh, loaded down, and, uh, but you did the best you could. You couldn't move anywhere very quickly uh, because there was ice on the ground, for one thing. And uh, you, most of us, all of us, I'd say, were, were really well wrapped with, with clothing. And the fact that uh, if you tried to do anything requiring any manual dexterity beyond pulling a trigger, uh, you sooner or later had to remove the gloves. And your, your fingers would freeze instantly. They became, within the first 30 seconds or so, they were numb. You couldn't getting a tactile feeling from them, which uh, was quite a, quite a problem. That was a situation where the weather, in one respect, was on our side. A lot of the injuries, gunshot injuries, uh, didn't bleed very much because of the, the severe cold. And any, any bullet that got through the clothing also opened up a pathway for the cold. So... You didn't have to use many tourniquets or anything like that, as you would in jungle warfare. So the, the weather helped us in that respect, but it also 
made it very difficult to try to do much in the way of diagnostic probing. Uh, so you, you just trusted your instincts. And the ma- main thing was to get them to an aid station where they had light and they had some degree of heat, you know, from land, um, stoves. The frostbite, when you were dealing one-on-one with each other, uh, you might hear a complaint about, I'm numb, I can't feel a thing, and my feet, I keep stopping the feet to get the circulation going. But other than that, you didn't get many subjective symptoms. It was only after they got to an aid station or evacuated to a field hospital that the extent of the frostbite injuries became known. And uh, it's sort of like the old business about people freezing to death. Uh, It's not a painful way to go. Now, couple this with gunfire injuries and bayonets, things like that, then you've got a different situation. But uh, it's still the frostbite. We all knew we, we were getting it. But it wasn't bothering us that much. People just kept going on because it was just on the same continuum as everything else that was happening to us. There was no abrupt transition other than, uh, you know, if, if you got hit by gunfire. It, cold was a severe discomfort and a severe obstacle to getting much of the things done that we had to do. But other than the severe discomfort, nobody was, to my knowledge, was all that concerned. Frostbite was something that we had heard about, knew nothing about, and that showed up later when we get to hospitals and you see the terrible toll it took. You know, frostbite is insidious in that respect. Uh, When you're getting it, I'd say most people are not really all that aware that they've moved into this whole new area of disability. It's insidious because the victim uh, is probably the last one to know about it. Uh, It's just a a further progression of the discomfort, except it all of a sudden starts feeling better because you've lost your sensations. The nerves have been frozen. By the way, one of the uh, things about frostbite, the personal injury, quite often is noticed more earlier by one of your buddies. They'll say, hey, you better, you know, get that covered up or, you know, put something around your mouth or your, cover up your nose. And the, the victim doesn't feel it as a rule. The terrain uh, for the for the whole retreat, we were limited pretty much to this narrow ox cart road, which was really wide enough for one vehicle, maybe. Um, usually, in most stretches of it, had sharply rising hills on one side and sharply a sharp drop off on the other side. Uh, so you couldn't have a whole lot of activity going forward. You, you had a column, and the whole column moved or the whole column stopped. There was very little passing each other or going in two directions, only with the greatest of difficulty. And that's no way to fight a war or a battle. 
I don't recall any line of uh, demarcation there. It was a, just a progressive thing. And the, uh, the hardest part was in the middle of the night when the attacks had let up for a while and they were massing to make other attacks. We were under attack all night long, every night, not quite as much during the day. And it was in those interim spells where there was not a lot of action going on that you started personally feeling the cold. Uh, the excitement of the battle put the cold way back in your mind. And that's true of uh, people who undergo... Uh, uh, I'm looking for the expression combat fatigue or uh, breakdown in combat. They usually don't do it in battle, despite what the movies show. They do it in between battles. It's when the mind has a chance to start meandering. Every attack was a very dynamic situation, and a lot of it was seesaw back and forth. You were never sure until they cleared away who had won, who had lost, how many people you had lost, and whether your lines had held. And so uh, it was every man for himself in one sense. We were all working together. Every man was looking out for the fellow on either side. But other than that, we weren't getting much in the way of direct commands to do this, do that. Um, when it was required, we had good officers who would make sure that everybody got the word, we want to move over this way or we want to go back up and take that ground and all that. But uh, in the battle, it was a, a singular experience. You were surrounded by other people doing the same thing, but you you were in your own private war in one sense. Our whole experience down south in, in South Korea was that we defeated every enemy we, we faced and we kept winning and we recaptured the capital city of Seoul and we drove them out and we were victorious. And we get up to the Chosen Reservoir, we were accustomed to being victorious. We didn't think, we felt we were invincible. Now we also got word after, after this battle heated up and went into days that the Eighth Army, which was on our left, was 50 miles behind us. We were up there all by ourselves, and we had a small army contingent over in the right, and they got clobbered by, by these same Chinese. And it's a sad situation in the sense that uh, they took a lot of punishment that we would have taken if they hadn't been there. And they weren't all that effective against the Chinese, but as shock absorbers, uh, yeah, and I, I mean no disrespect, a lot of brave men got, uh, got terrible uh, injuries up there and killed. I'm not personally aware of any of our people who, who froze to death. Uh, they may have succumbed to the cold after they were injured and put on a vehicle where they were laying still because the trucks were so packed with wounded and they were like cordwood. 
in sleeping bags alive, but stacked, and then other Marines stacked on top of them in, in the other direction. And uh, some of those, I'm sure, probably succumbed. But any of our people, we were too busy to freeze to death, you, you might say. But I remember one incidence going up the road during the day when I uh, watched a helicopter get shot down, one of our helicopters. is probably the saddest thing I've ever seen in my life. Here's this helicopter circling and getting ready to come in, and all of a sudden it just starts spiraling down and then crashed. Several of us went up to investigate, and in order to get there, we had to cross over this little uh, creek, little ravine, uh, and there was a dead Chinese soldier laying in there. And you really had no choice. He was the best stepping stone. So every one of us that went up there, not deliberately, just that was the way to do it, stepped on his chest, and he, <laughs> and that stuck with me for a long time because he, uh, I guess he hadn't been dead that long. But uh, other people noticed this. He'd give out with a sigh, but he was, no question, he was dead. Just the weight of us on, on his chest. I noticed they all wore quilted uniforms, uh, which I guess was a very effective way of keeping out the cold. The one thing that stuck in my mind, uh, as I say, we had many cases of frostbite, mostly to the feet. The Chinese that I saw were wearing tennis shoes. That's it. And I don't know whether they had socks on underneath. I sort of doubt it. But many of them survived without all this cold weather gear. And I'm sure many of them got severe case of frostbite too. But my theory at the time was that the constant flexing of the foot protected them from, from some of the uh, cold effects. Because once we put our feet in those shoe packs... It was, they were rigid in there. It was very hard to even warm yourself up by flexing your foot. Very hard to do, especially if, if you were wearing one or two pairs of socks, which most of us were. If we had extra socks, and I, and I did, I, I changed mine. But even as young men, we were like early 20s or, or younger than that, we were as limber as we were. It was quite a job with all these layers of clothing, like three, four pairs of pants, trousers, oh, and long underwear underneath that, to remove this tall boot and then pull it off and then remove the socks and then put on the new ones. And while you're putting on the new ones, your feet are starting to freeze just like your hands would when you take off the gloves. So uh, doing a little self-maintenance was very hard to do. And I know a lot of Marines were criticized for not changing the socks. But it was a very, very difficult thing to do. It was said that on the ship that traveled to the POW camp, the conditions were so horrible and the hold was so crowded that men would simply die standing up. Letters from My Father is a new docu-series podcast 
starring Jack Quaid from Oppenheimer and the Boys. It's the story of one woman who retraces her World War II veteran father's steps after he was captured by the Japanese and kept in one of the most notorious POW camps and had to find a way to survive. You can find Letters from My Father from Voyage Media anywhere you listen to podcasts. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. I think I can speak for all of us. We did not eat. Uh, if we had some rations left over that had uh, chocolate in them or um, cashew nuts, something like that. We could put those in our, our mouth. But the rest of the rations were in uh, regular tin cans. And if you managed to use a uh, can opener, remove the top, all you had in there was a solid block of ice. And you could not start a fire. You could, uh, In fact, one older Marine I knew for, who had gone through World War II in the islands, he went sort of ballistic. Uh, he broke, broke down because he started a fire to warm up some rations for his men. And that invited some mortar rounds to come in, and several of them got killed. And he blamed himself for that. He, should, he felt he should not have started the fire. But there was no way to defrost those cans. So by and large, none of us ate for uh, five to ten days. I lost 32 pounds in one month up there. Because on the on board ship, as a corpsman, I could go into the sick bay on the ship. And among other things, I weighed myself. And when I got back after the reservoir, I'd gone from 202 down to 168 in one month. And a lot of that was not eating at all, which was just as well, because if you ate sooner or later, you'd have to go to the bathroom. And that was impossible. Uh, there was, at least there's a theory, well, you melt some snow. And sure, you could take a handful. You've got to eat many, many, many handfuls of snow before you, your body feels it. But that's the only, only thing you could do is grab some snow and put it in your mouth and melt it from body heat. So no drinking. I was up there from, the fighting broke out November 27th. And I got evacuated, I think, December 3rd. Corpsmen under the Geneva Convention are not supposed to carry weapons. I always did. We all did. My standard issue was a carbine, smaller, lighter, easier to carry, because we had a lot of we had musette bags with all our supplies in there. But... Uh, 
the carbine's fine precision weapon, but even the light coating of oil would freeze. These carbines would jam. And I've heard stories of people urinating on them, doing anything to get them firing. Once you get them firing a little bit, the firing will generate enough heat to keep them going, at least for that particular battle. But uh, that's one of the reasons I, I relied on that revolver, an old-fashioned six-shooter. I figured if I need to protect myself or my patient or whatever, I've got something I can rely on. But, uh, yeah, that was a big problem. And I'd love to, love to see somebody calculate how that affected the outcome. Because it's as if we were working at a half strength or, you know, some marginal uh, percentage. There's good reason for pessimism because you saw so many good platoons, companies, uh, just cut to pieces. And you wonder, here we are, the finest troops in the world, so, so we were at that time. And we're getting torn up. But we had an overwhelming enemy. And the abrupt change from all the victories prior to that, and then all of a sudden to get thrown into this, it's got to have an effect uh, on your, you know, your, uh, your outlook on these things. I wanted to tell you that probably the hardest part of each day was the long night. Talking about daylight saving time back here, they had some system over there where they added five hours on each end of the night. You know, In other words, it, I'm being sarcastic, but uh, uh, we lived and prayed for the aircraft to come in. And through a lot of that, we had no air cover because the uh, ceilings were so low. And this one night, we all prayed uh, about... Uh, you know, let the planes get through, and all of a sudden they, it opens up. So we have our Christmas star for the chosen few, and that's where our emblem came from. And uh, everybody breathed a sigh of relief. And the planes were extremely effective. I, I was on up against an embankment one time, and the enemy was, I'd say, probably less than 50 yards up the hill beyond me. And I'm watching these F-4 Corsairs come in, Looked like they were coming to me, and I knew they weren't. But it's, it's quite a feeling to watch them and have that confidence that he's not getting you, but he's getting them. And they were, they were that good, and they would, they would peel off right above the ground. And we really were very grateful for their support. Uh, it turned, turned the tide of the battle. It was slow in dawning, uh, you know, the reality it was getting through to us because even our officers didn't have a whole lot of uh, intelligence. I'm talking about uh, not smarts, but uh, uh, intelligence information. Uh, they weren't sure what was going on. At least if they were, they carefully did not tell us. Yeah, because we had already felt invincible and we could do anything, go anywhere, take on anybody. And then all of a sudden we find these people uh, just by sheer numbers, are just tearing our outfits to pieces. And uh, I remember one part in, in one of the books, 
a uh, field officer or a uh, an officer on the line asked for mortar fire for a ridge under attack. And he said, I want a heavy barrage. And the answer came back by telephone, uh, what, both rounds? Because we were running out of ammunition. A lot of fellows, I uh, was not one of them, get into hand-to-hand combat with the bayonets. Fortunately, the Marines were trained to use bayonets. And so they gave a good account of themselves. We tried to conceal ourselves, stay down like in gullies or uh, whatever, get behind some rocks or outcroppings and uh, conceal ourselves that way. But uh, visibility was not not that big a factor because mostly they attacked at night, especially when our aircraft were in the area. They laid low. So we took most of the punishment during the night. I was in G-35, which is shorthand for George Company, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marine Regiment. And we had the, the, uh, the lead in taking the column from Udamnee about 30 miles, I guess, down to uh, Hagaru. And it was one series of roadblocks after another. Meanwhile, the road twists around. One place was like a horseshoe bend, and you could talk to the fellow over across from you. Um, but the when a corpsman was called, he had to go up the whole way and come back back to his unit when he was finished up, up there. There was one point there uh, where I got called up to look at this fellow had been hit, and the bullet had gone in upward through his chin. And I tried to check his vital signs, couldn't make a decision as to whether he was alive or dead. But so they were going to, you know, take him along on the on the column. And I didn't see anything I could I could do there for him because whatever had gone in there was still in there, most likely. I always felt guilty about that. And at one of our reunions, I happened to mention it to somebody. He said, yeah, I know who that was. It was so-and-so. And you know, he lives. He got back. What happened? The bullet had gone up and ricocheted around inside his helmet and back into his head and gone out, did not do any major damage. And, uh, but it certainly flattened him right there. And he was unable to move or anything like that, but he did a full recovery. When we got into Hagaru, um, I was having problems with frostbite and pneumonia, and I'd been dosing myself with areomycin or acromycin. I think it was areomycin, the yellow uh, capsules. As a corpsman, I had my own supply of those. And uh, I was trying to deal with, with uh, what I diagnosed as pneumonia. I'd been getting pneumonia at least once a year for a three-year stretch. So I was getting chills and fever despite the cold. And I was getting disoriented and difficulty breathing. So I was taking this areomycin, uh, no liquids to take it with. And I'm not sure whether that affected uh, or what, but um, they decided that you know, I, I should get out of there. I wasn't going to do anybody any good to, the way I was then. Also, I had frostbite in my hands, feet, and my nose and ears. When I get in into a tent there, they had a warming tent. At, and they had several of them at Hagru. 
and I would change my socks and I could see, you know, my feet were, were frozen. And also my fingers and my ears. And even today, I can tell you when, when it goes below 37 degrees, uh, I get tremendous earaches. And I had, had it on my uh, tip of my nose too, because some parts you just couldn't cover up and stay functional. Well, I call it a warming tent because they indeed did have warming tents. But I, I found a tent that had a stove in it, and I was able to go in and sit down on a, I forget what I sat on, whether it was a bench or what, I, um, or a box. Anyhow, I sat down proceeded to change my socks. And uh, um, that's when I started seeing what, you know, what had happened. And like I say, you don't notice these things when they're happening to you. But I, I knew the symptoms and, and all that. So the practice was they would set up warming tents uh, uh, scattered throughout the area where you were, uh, you know, where you're not stationed, but there's another expression. Anyhow, where you were committed at, at the time. And uh, to the extent possible, you'd go back, get warmed up a little, and then go back out in, in the cold. I never used one the whole time until we got to Hagaru. That was the first time I used a warming tent. I called it a warming tent. It may not have been an, an official one, but it, it was there and it was warm. This is all I wanted we get into the village of Hagaru, where we had an outpost there and supplies and a base camp of Marines waiting, waiting for us. They fed us, they looked after us, and uh, anybody who was wounded or disabled, they were trying to get them out by air. And the Air Force had a continuous stream of C-47s coming in there, taking wounded and disabled troops out. The engineers brought in their graders and bulldozers and just carved an airstrip out of the frozen ground. And uh, it was a very short one, and planes had a, a lot of trouble landing and taking off. And once they got airborne or before they sat down, they were under fire from the surrounding hills. A very dicey situation for those pilots. I've heard other people say the same story, but I actually was the last man on this one flight going out. They had already closed the door and were getting ready to take off. And then they opened the door again and they saw that I was ambulatory. So they called me in and had me sit down on the floor of the plane until they got airborne. And then the co-pilot got up out of his seat and had me come up and sit in the co-pilot seat and the pilot motioned for me to put on the headset, and he had tuned into the Armed Forces radio network. And after those weeks and weeks of uh, total isolation, all of a sudden I hear Hank Snow singing, I'm moving on. I, I just went to pieces. It was a, a very traumatic event, you know, emotionally. But I also had the feeling that... Uh, we were in, in World War III, and we were all already losing part of it. Fortunately, that did not, not pan out that way. But uh, 
just give you an idea of the, of the insight because you don't know what's going on all around you except what's in your immediate vicinity. It did mark you for the rest of your life because you saw so much, so much carnage, so many friends, people you know, uh, just all of a sudden they're gone in quite often in some horrible fashion. And uh, plus you're fighting an overwhelming enemy and at least in the back of your mind, you're thinking, your subconscious is saying, am I next? Am I next? You know, or when's it going to happen? And uh, uh, for the first couple of years when I got back to the United States, went into college, I'd go out on a date. Uh, I'm out with a beautiful young lady. I'm looking around. If something all of a sudden happens, where I'll dive behind that place, or you know, where can I take cover? And uh, it sticks with you. You uh, and a lot of us still wear socks to bed. Uh, as cold as it was over there, when I got back to to the U.S., I couldn't stand to even have a sheet on top of me sleeping at night. I was, my body had adjusted to the cold to that extent. So when I got married, my wife would sleep under the covers, I'd sleep on top. That was Navy Corpsman Jack Hessman. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.